I want to start a little bit personally with you. And I think I'm probably just giving my version of a story that a lot of us, if not most of us, could echo. I am a sinner like every human being that has ever lived. Now, you got to hear this. I'm a sinner by nature, and I'm a sinner by choice. There's a distinction. So I was born into this world a sinner by nature, and believe me, it did not take long for me to really learn to be a sinner by choice. I came into the world with a heart pre-programmed, kind of like software, to rebel against God. So sin is not, you have to hear this, you've got to begin incorporating this into your theology, your, your knowledge of God. Sin is not merely the things you should not have done or the things we should have done but did not do. That's not really what sin is at its root. What, what it is at its root is a heart that wants to defy God and does not trust God. At the root, that's what sin is. It's a rebellion that is by nature me and by choice too often me. And it results in me doing things that I shouldn't do. And it results in me not doing the things that I should have done. And I was born into a world system that like a motherboard of a computer, like an upgradable processor, it ran the software of my onboard nature to sin with ease and speed. That's what the world system can do. It takes the nature to sin and it perfects it and it can increase it better and better better as eons go by. And I was born with the nature to sin that I quickly learned how to master, immersed in a world that gave me the power and the reason and the motivation and the temptation to sin, but behind all of that was, an, was a programmer, a very evil programmer who has a whole legion of his staff that are customizing all of his spiritual tech for my spiritual particular life. They're using all of their tricks of the trade to help me learn and to want to rebel even more. So I'm born by nature a sinner. I quickly mastered it by choice. I've got a processor in my flesh, my old flesh, that really picked up with speed the ability to sin. And there's a programmer that really perfects how to get me to want to sin. Now, of course, I'm referring to my flesh, this world system, and the devil. Now, watch what happens. God came and rescued me. And he started his rescue mission very early in my life, and that's not always what he does for every person, but he did for me. And the Holy Spirit put in my heart an understanding and a belief that heaven and hell are really true places. They're not made up places by preachers just to manipulate their congregations. So I came to my mom as a little boy and I asked her, how can I go to heaven? And she explained that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to save me by dying on the cross and raising him from the dead. That was a truth. I remember where I was when she explained this to me. 
That was a truth that began to finally penetrate my young mind, began to stir my young emotions, it began to shape my young will, all of that is my heart, and it began to drop seeds of power into my, my heart, into my life. And she explained to me that if I trusted Jesus, if I trusted what God has done for me through Jesus, His Son, not what I can do for Him. My mom was very clear in that. She said, Tim, it's not what you can do for God that can save you. It's what God has already done for you through His Son, Jesus. Then if I trust Him, if I believe that, if I place my trust in Him, that He will forgive me my sins, which I already knew I had because I was feeling a lot of guilt. By her bed, we prayed. And I confessed those sins to God. I confessed what I understood in my little mind, that I was a sinner by nature and by choice. And even though I didn't use those words, I was starting to get that a little bit. I confessed that to God. But the reality, now listen, the reality of what it meant to have faith in Jesus and live in that forgiveness, that wouldn't emerge for several more years. The moment when I asked God to forgive me, listen, here's what he did. He gave me a new software, gave me a new heart. The heart of flesh that I was born with, that nature that quickly mastered sin, that nature to sin. He gave me a new heart, a new heart of flesh. That was a heart of stone. He gave me a new heart of flesh. That's what he put in me, a new heart. And that, that happened the moment that I asked him to forgive me. And all of a sudden, he began to pulse in me a better motherboard with the ultimate processor called the Spirit of God that came into my heart. And he began, the Spirit of God did, to reprogram the way that I thought, the way that I was thinking, the things that I was believing, so that my naturally defiant heart of stone that he removed from me in order to give me a new heart of flesh that was now capable of wanting him, capable of desiring him capable of obeying him that new heart of flesh began to be empowered by the Spirit of God with new thoughts new desires and a new way of life and he replaced my citizenship my allegiance to this world system with full rights to his kingdom along with other people whom he has saved and he put me in with them in this thing called the church where we began to learn to love one another began to learn to live with one another to encourage one another to bear one another's burdens to encourage one another to teach one another to confess to one another this is what the church is and he put me into this thing called the church with a new citizenship to his kingdom he gave me a job, he gave me a purpose in life, he gave me the ability and the people around me to be able to live out that purpose, to bring God to other people who desperately needed to know him. Now let's leave my story and let's get back to Jonah's story as we conclude this series. Jonah was a sinner 
saved by God's grace. He came into this world with the nature of sin, quickly mastering by choice the ability to sin, and he did nothing to deserve salvation. He was saved by God's grace. Listen, that means that he had done nothing to deserve it. God decided to save him because of God's merit, not Jonah's. God's merit, not Tim Ackley's. And he wasn't saved because he was a nice guy. In fact, listen, he wasn't a very nice guy anywhere in this book. So it wasn't his niceness that saved him. He didn't come from the right family. He didn't have a, a family pedigree by which God said, well, I'm going to save you because I saved your grandmother and your grandparents and your father and your mother and all of your siblings, so yeah, I'll save you too. That's not how Jonah was saved. He was saved by grace. It wasn't because he lived at just the right time or attended church classes or took communion regularly or had a priest or a pastor pray over him. None of that saved him. He, sa he was saved by God's grace. God decided to save him. So Jonah believed and trusted in God's willingness to give him mercy and grace, and God gave that to him and put Jonah in his kingdom where Jonah received a job, a purpose for living, a people to live within, and he began to serve God and bring God's name to people who desperately needed him. Now I want you to hear this very, very carefully. In my life, in Jonah's life, in your life, Christian brother and sister, and I'm speaking to the Christians, God has brought us into his kingdom to serve him in his great story. And I want to talk about that story for a little bit. God created everything. He is the creator. Do you know what it was like before sin came into this world? Adam and Eve were eating food that they had picked from a tree, tree that they were allowed access to, and they bit into that. And listen, I'm going to tell you what happened in them because they were sinless, and God is to be glorified in everything, and creation was perfect. They bit into that, and deep soul satisfaction came into them, and deep awareness of God's love and God's providence came into them, and the grace and the kindness of God permeated their minds, and it was a feast that fruit was. It was a feast of the soul as well as the body and Adam and Eve were walking in the garden and I can tell you what was going on they looked at each other and they enjoyed each other's company and what that enjoyment would have done to them was it would have harbored no reason to hide for each other from each other it would have harbored nothing but satisfaction to be in the company of the other person there was no jealousy there was no fear there was no insecurity there was in their friendship and in their love and in their relationship a sense that that permeated to the bottom of their heart, that God created this, God gave this to them as a gift. They were enjoying God by enjoying each other, and this is creation. But then sin came, and it fractured all of creation. Listen, every single piece of creation was fractured. So you eat now with sin in creation, and you're more thankful for the food than you are for the giver of the food, and the food can become the idol, and the food is where 
your desire is rather than the desire of God and relationships now are fraught with insecurities and you're wondering how you can maintain it or reject it and get a new one rather than luxuriating in the ones that God has given you. That's what sin does. He created everything. Sin broke it all. And God would not stand idly by. He planned for this. He knew this was going to happen before he created anything. In fact, he laid out the plans before he created anything. And he sent his son. And all through the Old Testament, you keep getting clear glimpse after clearer glimpse because it gets clearer as you go that there's going to be one from God, the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God, who is going to fix everything. And he's going to fix everything, the psalmist kept saying, by dying for us. So God sent his son Jesus. Jesus Christ to die in our place in order to redeem listen all creation not just you and I all creation the planet the stars the comets the cattle everything part of creation God is redeeming it but it doesn't end there unfortunately our theology often ends it there but it goes on there's one more the creation and then the fall and then redemption through Christ and his death and his resurrection but it doesn't end there it goes to one final part some theologians call it the consummation the end trajectory of all things I'm calling it the restoration where God now finally, fully, ultimately renews everything. So there's a new heaven, there's a new earth, we're in new bodies. Those who were part of the world system and rejected Christ, they're out of the picture. They're unfortunately and horribly in a place called hell, but everybody else that came to Christ, put their, their trust in Him, were saved by God. They're in this place called a new earth, and the new Jerusalem comes down out of the heavens to settle onto it, and guess Guess what we're working and we're enjoying friendships and we're eating and we're playing and we're worshiping it's everything that God had intended but now he is ultimately for eternity renewed it he's restored it and now creation brings to glory the glory to God we are in the story that arcs its way through the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And we are in the redemption moving towards the restoration. And these are exciting times. And God will bring all things to His glory. And this is possible because God hasn't left us alone to figure out how to live this Christian life. He sent His Holy Spirit to live in every single Christian. Listen, if you have put your faith in Christ, you have been saved, you've come to the Father, and the Father has brought Himself to you in the Spirit of God. Now listen, He's climbed inside your heart to take up residence, and the Spirit of God pulses in your new heart with a motor and an engine that gives you the power to obey God. So you keep in step with the Spirit, and He bears the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, all of these beautiful, wonderful things that the flesh cannot fabricate. The world has no resources, and the devil doesn't want to see. 
This is what Peter meant when he said his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Listen to this. So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the from the corruption of the world that is in the world corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. The divine Power is the Spirit of God, and it's living in you, Christian, transforming you, teaching you through the knowledge of Him who called us His living and powerful Word. So here's what we're doing right now. You ready? And this is where we're going to start getting back to Jonah. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. When you were saved... The moment you put your faith in Jesus, here's what God did, ready? Watch this. He took you out of the world system in which you were born. He put you into the kingdom of God, which finds its tangible expression in the church. And that kingdom is a growing, like that mustard seed into the great tree by which birds can find their nests. And that mustard seed called the kingdom of God is growing, and it's growing as more and more Christians are coming into it. God is saving and rescuing more and more people, and they are bending their will to his will and yielding and submitting, letting him be on the throne and you on the worshiping floor, and you're serving him, and I'm serving him, and people are seeing what the church is like, and they're hungering for our love they want to taste what it means to know God's grace because we can show God's grace to them and we can love each other and we can actually care about the suffering and the injustice in this world not because caring about it brings the kingdom of God that's God's job we just get to serve him in the kingdom we're in kingdom work right now And so was in Jonah. And he hated it when God called him to do kingdom work in his city called Nineveh. Now look at verse 10, and we're going to close down the book of Jonah tonight. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. The word pity in verse 10, it means to have a tender feeling for someone in distress or misery. And you might be thinking compassion, and there are some Bible translations that use that word compassion, but this is a little bit different than compassion. It's not quite compassion, it's distinct. Here's why it's distinct, you ready? Pity is motivated by the condition of a person, while compassion is motivated by the misfortune of a person. So you've got pity that moves towards your condition. Compassion moves towards your misfortune or your circumstances. One is about you as a person and it comes out of you and you want to do what you can to help. The other one goes towards the situation that the person is in and you want to do what you can to help. This is pity. It is deep. It is going into the condition of a person. And God says, you pitied that plant because I took it away from you. 
that plant that was giving you shade and comfort and I sent the worm and it ate the plant that I gave you and now you've got a pity for the condition of the plant and that's what God is saying. You know, when Jesus came upon the city of Jerusalem and he neared the day of his crucifixion, he lamented. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. That's the heart of God seen in Jesus, the son of God, towards Israel, the people of God who had rejected him. And what a contrast we've got with Jesus and Jonah, who's looking at not the city of Jerusalem. Watch, get the irony of this, get the contrast. Jesus is lamenting over Jerusalem. Jonah is hardly lamenting over Nineveh. He doesn't want them saved. He wants God to destroy them. Now, I I hear this all the time, so this has been a fantastic opportunity for me to correct something. If you think that the God of the Old Testament is all sternness and no happiness and no warmth and no love, while the God of the New Testament is all love and not a lot of sternness, you've got all bite and, or, and no bark and then you've got all bark and no bite. If that's the way that you approach God from the old to the new, then you don't understand God. God had great pity on the people of Nineveh, while Jonah had none. He had zero. Jonah had pity for the plant, which is another way of saying he had pity on himself. Because the destruction of that plant brought great stress on Jonah. He wasn't mourning the plant because he felt sorry for it, but because he felt sorry for himself. This is Jonah's pity. He's pitying him. And he felt pity for something he had no personal attachment to. The plant was not his labor. He did not make it grow, as God explains in verse 10. He hadn't even known it more than a night. So he's got all this investment of emotional energy towards a plant, a non-human being, an an inanimate object that he had nothing to do with, and it didn't last more than an evening, but he's got all this emotional investment towards it. It was a gift of grace from God to him. But what much greater was the grace that God gave the city by saving them and relenting from his judgment. So it's against that background of verse 10 that God is going to ask his final question. Now, now you've got to hear this. He's asking this question with the intention to help Jonah see his self-directed, off-mission heart. So let me review that for just a second. And look at me and let me bring this home. Jonah's compass needle, if his heart was a compass, the needle was pegged to himself. That's all he cared about. He hated the Ninevites. He hated the Assyrian people. He didn't want to see them get saved. He was all about him, and he was furious at God that God did something that Jonah did not want, relenting on his judgment, giving grace, and saving the people of Nineveh. So he is 
self-directed, and listen, you heard this last week, when you are self-directed, you will go off mission. He should have been on the mission, the story arc, through Genesis to Revelation. Listen, the creation that was supposed to bring glory to God was fractured by sin. So God did something about it. He's going to redeem it, and you put your faith in him, and the death of Jesus Christ would have been applied backward to Jonah's day, backward to Moses' day, backward to Abraham's day, because God's not bound by time. So all of a sudden, you put your faith in God, and salvation begins to flow to you, and he puts you out of, he takes you out of the kingdom of this world. He puts you into the kingdom of God. He gives you a purpose to live. He puts you into labor. He gives you the power of the Spirit of God to labor with you, the Word of God to know how to labor, and then the favor of God to do it with joy. That's not Jonah. He's off mission. And should not I pity Nineveh, verse 11, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. I love what the Cornerstone Bible commentary says about this. It says, all those people, all those animals, I made them Jonah. I have cherished them all these years. Nineveh has cost me no end of effort, and they mean the world to me. Your pain is nothing to my pain when I contemplate their destruction. That's the heart of God. See, his heart is full of relentless grace, more than we could ever imagine. But who are the 120,000 persons? Who are they? There are pages and pages of interpretations written on this verse with several different ideas. The most popular one is, probably the one that you've heard, I mentioned it early on in the series, is that these are the children. Look at what he describes them by. They do not know their right hand from their left. And most experts, but, but most experts will agree that if the 120,000 persons, if, that, if that's children, as a lot of people take it to mean, then that would put the population of the city around 600,000 people. We're, we aren't talking high-rise apartment complexes where you can get 300 people in one building as this goes 30 stories up. 30 stories up. That's not what these were like. These are sprawling homes. That's too many people, 600,000, that could reasonably inhabit the city the size that they know it to be. They found the walls. It's eight miles around in the city proper. And then if you go out to the outlying metro Nineveh, you've got a 60-mile circumference wall. But there can't be 600,000 people living in the city of Nineveh. So who in particular are the 120,000 persons if they're not the children of the adults of Nineveh? Let me teach you something in the background of the text. A key is in the phrase, who do not know their right hand from their left. This was an idiom. You know what an idiom is, right? I'll give you some examples. It's a phrase that's not meant to be taken literally. We have a lot of them, actually, that originated in the scriptures that are still alive today. A drop in the bucket, that's scriptural. 
A fly in the ointment, that's from the Bible. Am I my brother's keeper? That's an idiom in the Bible. The English language has a lot of them. You are barking up the wrong tree. That's an idiom. It means you're looking in the wrong place. Or here's another one. Let's, Let's get back to the drawing board, meaning it's time to start over. Or a really well-known one, my personal favorite, curiosity killed the cat. I like anything that says that. Is Melanie here? (laughs) Meaning nosiness can lead to a bad situation. So this is an idiom, the right hand from the left. And it appears in a lot of places in Scripture. Let's read them. This is kind of actually interesting. According to the instructions, Deuteronomy 17, that they give you, and according to the decision which they pronounce to you, you shall do, you shall not turn aside from the verdict that they declare to you, either to the right hand or to the left. That was an idiom. Joshua 1, only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may have good success wherever you go. That was a common idiom. The phrase means the ability to discern and choose between good and evil or to live in ignorance. You get it in the New Testament as well. Jesus himself employs it. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. The idiom was still alive, and he brought it into even his teaching. So it means, again, the ability to discern and choose between good and evil or live in ignorance. The 120,000 persons in Nineveh did not know their right hand from their left meant they could not, I believe, discern and choose what is right from evil. They were ignorant of spiritual truth. Here's who I think they were. They were brand new spiritual believers. And the people in Nineveh believed God, chapter 3, verse 5. They called for a fast put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. You've got to ask, is that salvation? Did they get saved? That's salvific or salvation language. Romans chapter 4 verse 3. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So the people of Nineveh were saved. God relented from his wrath because they trusted in him. They became his children. They were brought into the family of God. A city of 120,000 new believers, all of them, now watch and listen, all of them, every one of them, coming from a polytheistic mindset, meaning that they served a whole pantheon. They had a whole bunch of gods that they served. And they didn't know God's law. They didn't know what God was like. These were spiritual infants. And I can tell you, brother and sister, for you and I, for people in Nineveh, for people in the Old Testament, here's what happens if you don't know God as a Christian. If you're not going to grow in your knowledge of God, then Hosea 4, 6 has a warning. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. You have forgotten the law of God. God has compassion on Nineveh, for he knows the difficulty that these new believers are going to have. They must be taught. 
And Jonah, the one who could have been teaching them, the prophet from God sent to them, had no compassion for them. And though he should have been with these new believers, teaching, praying for them and with them, he separated himself and left. Now I want to read what happened to Israel after Joshua, their leader, left. This is what happens when the man of God in your midst will not be there for you. Listen to Israel, or listen to Judges 2, verse 7. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. But then three verses later in verse 10, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And here comes the book of Judges. Time after time, they move away from the Lord. They lose their confidence in God. They did not know God. They did not know God's word. Christian, take that warning. If you're not going to take the word of God and bring it into your mind, I'm going to tell you exactly what's going to happen to you. You're going to live out eerily. Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed, squeezed into the mold of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is what renews your mind so that you meditate on it day and night. You will be like a tree planted by streams of water. You will have fruit. You will have leaves that do not wither. You will prosper for God as you serve Him and labor for Him in His his kingdom but if you do not do that you're going to blow away like the chaff you're going to sit in the seat of the scorners and the mockers they're going to have their way with you what's going to happen in Nineveh will they share the same fate as Israel in Judges chapter 2 40 years after God saved this city in the book of Jonah, the Assyrian people returned to their ways. They attacked, they had destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. Their cruel and their savagery was as great as it was before the revival of the book of Jonah. Forty years. One generation. 150 years after the book of Jonah, after God saved this city of Nineveh filled with Assyrian people, the Assyrians were utterly destroyed so badly that in the year 612 B.C., Nineveh was destroyed by a coalition army, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Medes, the Scythians. Within two generations of that fall, no one even knew where the city of Nineveh was. In fact, Alexander the Great, with his army, was on the sands over the, the ruins of Nineveh, nobody even knew what was buried beneath their feet. It would be 2,000 years before anybody uncovers the location of Nineveh. There's 120,000 brand new believers in this city. Who's going to teach them? Who's going to come alongside and make disciples out of them so that they can disciple their children? 
so that the kingdom of God can expand like that mustard seed into that great tree? Who's going to come alongside and pray with them? Who's going to show them and teach them who God is and demonstrate it through their love and their grace and their relentless mercy and compassion and patience and love and joy and kindness and gentleness and self-control? Listen, if Jonah's not going to do that, what hope do they have? The gospel is not just about lost people being saved. It's about lost people being rescued and learning to live out their salvation in a way that increasingly looks like Jesus. Jonah preached the gospel. The entire city of Nineveh believes they get saved, but now they're spiritual babies in the kingdom of God, and the work of the prophet has just begun. It's not done, for the mission of God is to redeem all creation, the cattle as well, and restore it to its glorious purpose. What does all of this mean as I begin to close for the church today? Let me speak generally of the church, but let me speak personally to you. And I'm going to speak personally to every single person who, who claims to be saved, who says that they have put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ, and God has taken them out of the kingdom of this world and put them into a new kingdom and come into their heart by the Spirit of God and is bringing the living Word of God to bear, to change them and transform them and use them for work and labor and service and worship in the kingdom. I'm going to speak to you. It means you've got to get off the sidelines. You've got to get out of the locker room and you got to get into the game because it's not tolerated by God. There is absolutely no way, Christian brother and sister, that you could be pleasing God off mission. There's no way that any of us could be pleasing God if our lives are about us. It is just not possible. And God will move to get you in the game. And he will bring these redemptive questions to you. It might come through a sermon. It might come through a book that you read. It might come through the word of God. It might come through worship. It might come through a friend. But he's going to drop a redemptive bomb in you to get you out of the sidelines, out of the locker, and then back into kingdom labor. And that mission is the one that Jesus Christ gave to every one of his followers, and ironically, it's exactly what Jonah did not do. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That is the mission. There is not another one in the Bible. It is every Christian's mission. And as John Stott, that now no longer catholic priest that was on fire born again for god's work he said missions arises from the heart of god himself is communicated from his heart to ours mission is the global outreach of the global people of a global god we are to go to everyone around us go and make disciples now listen you can evaluate yourself 
against that. Go and make disciples. Are you teaching? Are you baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit? In other words, are you helping them to get involved in the church, find their identity in the kingdom of God, among the people of God? Are you, finding them, uh, are you helping them to find their identity and their adoption that they're in the family of God? The Father is their Father and Jesus is their Son. And the very same love that the Father has for Jesus, He has for them. He's got all the spiritual blessings that Jesus has in store for every single believer. Listen, are you involved in disciple making it's not just salvation it's not just a prayer that you pray or an altar call after a message it's more than that it includes a person becoming a follower of Christ but it's a lot more it's about teaching one another the word and, and ways of God about helping people become mature in the Christian faith it's about sharing the good news and helping people to live out the good news so as we close this message Let's all ask ourselves this question. Let's just brace ourselves like men and women like God told Job to do. Get ready for it. Am I truly, with all of my heart, with heart abandoned, am I truly giving everything I have for the, the mission of God? How do you answer that question? Everything that we spend, are we stopping and going, is there God somewhere else that I need to give this money to? Is there somebody in more need than I am that can bring kingdom purpose to them? Or I want to get involved in an activity, but Lord, wait a minute, I want to stop and I want to pray. How do I get involved in that activity and make that my mission field? How do I go there with a the purpose that I'm going there to show, to teach, to speak about my God and how he demonstrated his love in Jesus Christ? Am I living right now the mission of God? Now let me end with this. The book of Jonah ends without telling us how Jonah will respond. You know why I think that happens? Here's why I think the book of Jonah ends in this way. It's so that you, Christian brother, and me will put yourself into the story and pick it up with you. It's done with Jonah. Now it's about Tim Ackley. And it's about you. Is your life a beacon? Is your life a light? Is your life drawing the eyes of people to our relentlessly gracious God? And are you stepping into the lives of other people to do that very work? To show them the good news of Jesus Christ. That's Jonah. And that's us.